visited with your board last night to talk through the current state of things here at the church and how the uh, Northeast District of the Westland Church can continue to come alongside of you to be a partner with you in the searching for a new pastor as well as maintaining uh, the good church that you do currently have here. I especially am grateful today as district superintendent for the way that this church has stepped up to fill gaps. I love the worship team and the way that they're involved and folks greeting at the door today when I came in and just the way that people are caring across the board back in the sound booth and uh, in every way you're maintaining a caring, loving congregation on behalf of your community that you serve today. I want to thank you for that. That means a lot uh, to me. Some churches just kind of go into a depression and, and everybody backs away and backs off. Your church has not done that. You have said, uh, how, can we, how can we stay together and be together as the church and be the presence of Jesus here in Katyville? So I love you for that, and that's from my heart today. I appreciate very much. I live in Allentown, Pennsylvania, so uh, the Phillies lost last night, and uh, that's right near, I live right near Philly, and so that was a little bit of a heartbreak, but I had an extra hour overnight to get over it, so <laughs> I thank God for, for that anyway. So I am over it. I'm okay and uh, uh, we'll see how my Buffalo Bills do. I lived in Buffalo for years. Uh, the Eagles are undefeated. That's right. This is a good time to be in the Northeast here. So, uh, And I'm grateful to God that it rained and not snowed this morning. So I know that this is a time of year when things can get underway. Uh, and having lived in Buffalo, New York for more than 20 years, I do know that, uh, that we, you can have snow in the early part of November, even in October. We've had snow in October. So uh, so far, so good, but I'm also grateful uh, for the way that your church stays engaged at the district level. We have 120 churches across the northeastern part of the United States that I'm the district superintendent over and supervising. Uh, we have uh, urban churches in Philadelphia and in Boston and in New York City and out on Long Island. We have suburban churches all throughout the, the eight states that make up the northeast. And we have uh, small town churches like yours uh, here. And uh, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Every weekend I get to go traveling around the district. I'm in a different church every Sunday. Last Sunday, I was also up this way in Norfolk and uh, worshiped uh, there with our Wesleyan church, uh, and, or Norfolk as they say there, and uh, was able to be a blessing and to be blessed by, uh, by being with them too. Later today, I'm heading down to uh, Brooklyn, and I've got some meetings with the church down there today, tonight and tomorrow. So I'm in my car a lot, so if God ever wakes you up or makes you think of me somewhere, I'm probably because I'm driving and I need prayer. So uh, just say a quick prayer for me out on the highways uh, here in the, in the Northeast. My wife, Anita, sends her love to you all, and some of you have gotten to know her through district conference and other ways. She is now a local church pastor herself in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. What a cool city around Christmas time, right? To, to be a pastor in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So she is their senior pastor and uh, uh, she's serving the Lord today in that particular way. One of my favorite books in the Bible is uh, the book of Philippians. We're not gonna go there today, but it's the book of Philippians. And part of the reason that it's the favorite book because if you read it first and then know why, why the letter to the church of Philippi was written by Paul, and then reread it again. It, it kind of jumps out at you. It's a wonderful little book. It's just a handful of chapters. It's easy to read in one sitting. And in the final uh, chapter in, in, the, in the book, 
Paul, uh, Paul talks about some things that many of us have memorized in scriptures. The verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that's in that particular chapter. And it's a wonderful chapter because Paul starts out that whole phrasing by saying, listen, I know what it is to have a lot of food and I know what it is to, to have no food. I know what it is to have clothing and I know what it is not to have anything to, to put on. In other words, I know what it is to have good life. I know what it is to live in poverty. And he said, I've learned how to do it. And the way he put it was, I've learned the secret to contentment. Isn't that great? Anybody that writes a book, the secret to contentment, we're all going to go out and buy that book, aren't we? We're going to figure out what is that secret. We kind of lean in and listen if they're on a podcast. What is this big secret that you have? And the secret is, I can do all of those things through Christ who gives me strength. Today's message, we're going to do a little bit of deep water faith today. We're going to go down a little bit deeper where the waters stir a little heavier, where problems exist, where difficulties in relationships happen, where finances get pained and we lose jobs, things like that. We're going to go down into that deep water faith to look at the audacity of Paul saying, regardless of the wealth or the no wealth, regardless of food or no food, I've learned the secret to contentment. That's amazing to me. What we're going to do this morning is take the next few minutes and go to the spot in the Bible where Paul actually learned that lesson where he learned the secret of contentment. It's the passage that was read just a few moments ago. If you have your Bible or your Bible app on your phone, you can uh, look it up again there. But it's 2 Corinthians in chapter number 12. Now, the church at Corinth was also started by the Apostle Paul. And the, the church at Corinth was this young uh, church filled with people who had never even heard about Jesus before Paul and his team spoke to them about him. These were Jewish people and these were Greeks and Romans in the city of Corinth. And when he presented the gospel, several responded. They formed a little church. He raised up a pastor. And then after a couple of months, Paul left to continue planting new Christian churches. But right from day one, the Corinthian church became a problem church. Have you ever been part of a problem church? Just a church that's just kind of, and after a while, it just gets that reputation. Oh, yeah, they're the, they're the difficult church in town. Well, that's what this church was. And it's not that they were being difficult on purpose. They were just brand new in the faith and didn't kind of know how to navigate things. So to give an example, they, they, didn't, they, they, they didn't know how to deal with a person who in their church was living in open sin and wouldn't repent. And, the, and so they, they were just kind of letting things happen and there was no one that was willing to lovingly use the word of God to challenge them in their, in their sin. Paul had to teach them on that. He also had to refer to um, when he wrote a letter to them, he had to refer to how they were treating Holy Communion, and it wasn't good. They, you know, we have Holy Communion, we have the elements that represent the body and blood of Christ. Well, they were treating it as a meal, and they would come up, and the ones with, that were a little uh, healthier would beat to the front the ones that weren't so healthy, and they were gobbling up. They were taking hands full of the bread, th treating it more like a snack before dinner or something, and Paul had to write to them to say, here's how, here's how we do it. Here's the meaning behind it. So he wrote the, the letter of 1 Corinthians that you have in your Bible. 1 Corinthians. But they, they kept having problems. There was a small group that started a gossip ring 
gossiping about Paul. So Paul had to write a second letter to the church to quell these problems. And now we don't have that particular uh, letter. The letter that you have called 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at it today, is actually Paul's third letter having to write to this problem church doing some corrections. How do we know that? Well, in this third letter, early on, Paul references another letter that he had to write that we don't have a copy of today. And so here are three letters to this difficult church just trying to get them to shape up and be more like Jesus, if you will. And it was difficult. And we come to the, the end of the letter now, and Paul says that uh, he, was, he was given something called a thorn in the flesh. Now, he doesn't tell us what that thorn in the flesh was. He doesn't speak to us about, you know, uh, and there's been speculation over 2,000 years of Bible scholars are trying to speculate and looking for hints in the rest of scriptures. We do know for a fact that Paul had bad eyesight. Uh, from other scriptures. And so was that what he was talking about? I, I was given this thorn in the flesh, uh, whatever it was. Uh, some said that he had epilepsy. And so was that what he was talking about? Uh, somebody speculated that he had a bad marriage. And is that what Paul was referencing there? Uh, so nobody knows because Paul just doesn't say, may I add my two cents of speculation? Do you mind if I speculate along with 2,000 years of Bible scholars? You know who I think was his thorn in the flesh? The Corinthian people. He's had to write three letters to this group, and he's tongue-in-cheek here saying, yeah, then I, the Lord, you know, I, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. I was given this thorn in the flesh. And that's okay, because we all have problems. And Paul talked in, in Philippians that he had problems. He know what it, knows what it is to have food and, and no food. He knows what it is to have problems. And so he describes the first problem by calling it a thorn in the flesh. And that's okay. Christians, if nothing else, we're realists. We name things. We don't pretend something doesn't exist in a, in a la-la land of hope and wishes. We're, we're realistic people. We understand that this side of heaven, because of the fallen nature of mankind, that we're sinful people, and there are problems, and the body gets ill, and money runs out, and relationships are strained, and it's just that way. We know that. We know that as Christians. Thorn in the flesh. I've had thorns in the flesh. In fact, true confession, I have one this morning. About a week ago, I got one in my big toe on this foot, and it's been the dickens for me to try to get it out. It was still there this morning when I was trying to look at it and say, come on, what's going on here? And it's not, it's not a terrible irritant, but it's always there. I can feel it right now. Thorns in the flesh, they can be rather painful and all of that. Paul makes a mistake, though. And here's the first mistake he makes, and it's a classic one. It's a classic mistake that many of us, including yours truly, has made in my lifetime. And it's the mistake of naming the, ish, naming the problem, calling it something, so thorn in the flesh. We can all relate to that. We know what a thorn in the flesh is. But look what Paul does. He goes on, secondly, to call it a messenger of Satan, and it's tormenting me. Look how just in one sentence, Paul is taking the naming of a problem and renaming it and then renaming it. And this is where, for many of us, we make the very first mistake. We overstate our case. And we work ourselves into what I call a downward spiral. We get to a place in our, in our uh, situation where I don't know if it's because misery loves company and so we 
try to overstate the case to other people and we talk about it we dwell on it at two o'clock in the morning we can't sleep because of that relationship that's just digging so deeply at us and we stir and it goes deeper in us and we name it to other people we talk about it with other people and that thing that was just the thorn in the flesh all of a sudden then becomes a messenger of satan and now it's tormenting me now again i have no idea really what paul was talking about with this particular thorn in the flesh but what he was doing with his words and with his attitude, listen to me on this, because this is the mistake, he was giving power to the problem to have over him. He was giving permission for that problem to have power over him. The more you speak about the problem, the more you complain about it, the more you stir it up, the more you lay awake at two o'clock in the morning, that's not the way that's not a healthy way to live you're letting the problem dominate not only your waking hours but your midnight hours i don't know that christ ever thought it's good and healthy for his followers to be that overwhelmed and dominated by the problems mistake number one that paul made now he finally got around to fixing the mistake he did what he should have done earlier and he did it now he says, so I went to the Lord in prayer, and I asked him. It says, it's interesting, I asked him three times. I like that. In fact, the Bible celebrates what we call persistent praying. The Lord is never bothered by you bringing something up a few times to him because it's revealing the depth of your heart, it's revealing the difficulties that you're feeling and the burden that you're carrying, but the Lord is the place to take the burden. The minute you take it to the Lord, you give the power and the authority back to the only one that can actually do something about it. And you rob the problem, listen to this, you rob the problem of its power over you when you quit talking about it and instead talk about him. Talk about God. Go to God with it. And it was wonderful that Paul did that. Because immediately, the, the, the sense of balance was coming back again because he was taking the problem and giving the authority back to God again instead of speaking so authoritatively about the problem and how it's dominating my life. Messenger, Satan, tormenting me? What a sad place to be in one's life. I've been there. I know what it is to feel defeated by a situation or another person. I know what it is to feel under it. And the Lord never intended for you to me, you and me, to live under the burden of the problem. <coughs> now, Paul must, makes a mistake number two. He says, so three times, in verse number eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord. Here's the problem, the mistake. To take it from me. Mistake number two that Paul made was telling God how to fix the problem. It's pretty audacious when you think about it. You know, you finally, you finally come to your senses and say, why am I carrying this burden alone? Why am I giving it authority over me? Why not go to God and give it to him? And oh, by the way, God, when I give it to you, can I tell you how I want you to fix the problem too? <clears throat> That's very audacious when you think about what it is to live a life for Jesus 
but keep taking it back again. And so here he was going to, as he was giving it to God, was going to take it back again and tell God with Paul's little brain, tell the God that has the big brain, that knows how to address life in its best ways. And oh, by the way, here's how you're going to fix it for me too, God. It's pretty audacious. And it was a mistake. I've made this mistake many times in my life. In fact, if we're not careful, we often think of prayer in that vein, don't we? We think of prayer as more of a good luck charm or a genie in a bottle that we rub the side and, hello, Carl, how can I help you today? Well, you know that person that blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I do. I do know about that situation. And uh, God never asked me, what do you think I should do about it, Carl? But I treat him that way. And I say, and what I'd like you to do is just, and I give him the list of things he's going to do to take, take care of it. And Paul makes that mistake. It's a classic mistake. This is where the faith goes a little deep water. And it's at this moment that Paul learns the lesson of contentment. Contentment, by the way, means whether or not the problem gets fixed. That's amazing. There is another choice you have in life. When you take it to God, He's going to bring contentment in your life, and look how he does it. God answers him in the prayer, and he says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my authority, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Paul, you come to the right person you've done the right thing by coming to me with this problem don't tell me how to fix it let me not only address the problem in the way that i think is best but paul more than that let me address your fretting and the burden that you're carrying and the laying awake at night and this messenger of satan stuff that you were talking about and it's tormenting you paul i don't want you to be tormented by anything I want you to learn the secret of contentment. And he says, Paul, I'm not going to do it your way, but instead I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to give you my grace. Now, Paul reacts pretty quickly here by words, but I can imagine Paul had to sit on that for a little bit and begin to imagine a life not devastated, when problems come your way. A life that says, yes, we all have problems, and yes, I should take them to God, but I don't have to give that problem permission to have its way in my life. Whether, I, whether it goes away or whether it stays, think of anything. It could be cancer. It could be any number of things. That there is a way to live through the love and the the peace and the presence of Jesus Christ in one's life that says regardless of the problem, it no longer has power over me. It may even still be there, but I'm learning the secret of contentment. And the secret is that while God is working on the problem, in place of anxiety, he's going to give you his grace. And so look how Paul responds. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Now, if you don't understand what we were just saying, that's kind of crazy talk, isn't it? You want to hear more crazy talk? So that Christ's power can rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, 
I now delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, because when I'm weak, in reality, I'm strong. Because Paul has just discovered the secret to contentment. I can handle it through Christ who gives me strength. And Christ's strength comes through the gift called His grace. It's just a different way of living. And I know so many believers that have not discovered the secret to contentment. And they struggle and they wrestle and every problem that comes in, it knocks them back down again. And then they start talking about it and they talk to others about it and they name it. And every time they name it, it's got a larger descriptor and the mountain gets bigger and bigger with our words. And we lay awake at two in the morning and we can't sleep because we've given that problem all of the power and authority over determining my life instead of giving God the power to determine how I'm going to live that day and how I'm going to sleep that night. My grace is sufficient for you because somehow, Paul, in your weakness, you become strong. There's a confidence that is regardless of the problem, but it's full of my grace. Let me conclude this morning for those of you here and online today. Let me conclude with a story that most of you know about. There was a day when Jesus was uh, with his disciples. It was kind of a day off. They had had a lot of burdens, a lot of uh, crowds gathering around, and they were so tired that Jesus said, let's take a day off. Guys, why don't you get out on the fishing boat right off the, the shore of uh, Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee? Why don't you get in your fishing boat, go on out and spend the day out on the Sea of Galilee catching some fish. I'm going to stay back and just relax on the shore. You know, there are some boat people and there are shore people, right? Then there's mountain people, you know. But Jesus was the, kind of a beach guy, and he wanted to hang out there. He said, I'm just going to plug my batteries in and get recharged that way. They get out there, and somewhere in the middle of the day, a storm comes up, and it comes up so fast that the guys in the boat didn't have time to row back to the shore, so they figured, we're going to have to ride it out. And so that's what they started to do, but the storm got worse and worse. They pulled their sails down, but the boat was rocking heavily back and forth. And these are expert fishermen. These are fishermen that lived on the Sea of Galilee. They knew what they were doing. This storm was so bad that they started to say to each other, we're going to die. Listen to the way of the description. This is that thorn in the flesh, a storm. Now listen to how they're talking about it. Now we're going to die. You want to hear the third way they talked about it? Jesus back on the shore says, huh, the guys are in some trouble out there. I need to rescue them. And so what he does is something only Jesus can do. He decides to go to them walking on the water. He gets about 30 feet away, 30 or 40 feet away from the boat. And one of the guys spots him and he points to Jesus. Now listen to the, the, the third description of the problem, how much power this problem, the storm, had over them. They look at Jesus. It's Jesus. They see Jesus, and somebody says, look, it's a ghost. They even describe Jesus as a ghost. How much power that that storm was having over them and the we're going to die talk and all of that. They were just projecting all over the place, and then they even projected onto Jesus, he's a ghost. Well, one of them squints his eyes a little bit and says, guys, you know, that ghost looks a little like Jesus. To which Peter boldly out loud says, now I don't know if he ever came to regret what he said or not, but he was that kind of guy. He just kind of spoke quickly. And uh, anyway, he hollers out, he goes, if you're Jesus, tell me to come walking to you on the water the way you're doing it. And the ghost, right, the ghost says, come. 
I imagine the other 11 disciples go, ooh, and back a little bit away from Peter <laughs> in the boat there. All right, what are you going to do, pal? Well, to his eternal credit, Peter's the second man in recorded history to walk on water. He actually gets out of the boat. He goes over the side of the boat, and instead of sinking, he's standing. And he locks his eyes on Jesus. And the, the longer he, he locks his eyes on Jesus, he gets stronger, he gets more confident, and he's walking on water. He's doing what you're not supposed to do. The laws of gravity tell you, you don't do this. And he walks on water. Now, we don't quite know what happened. By the way, Jesus has not yet calmed the storm. You see that? That's that correlation to the Scripture in 2 Corinthians we're talking about. He was giving Peter grace to walk on top of the problem and not let the problem walk on top of him. As long as he locked his eyes on Jesus, he was walking on top of his problem. And the problem became irrelevant. I don't know what happened, but I can guess. A wave must have splashed him in the face and made him turn and look again. And all of a sudden, by looking back at the problem and, and dwelling on the problem, he probably reminded himself, wait, I'm not supposed to be... And he goes down in the water. Jesus comes over to him, grabs his arm, pulls him back up, puts his arm around him. They walk back. They get into the boat. The storm is still raging. Jesus has yet to even address the problem. But he was taking on Peter's heart problem. And they get back in the boat, and what Jesus says to Peter, first words out of Jesus' mouth, O oh, you of little faith. So this morning I come and bring this word to you today from God, that this is a faith word. This is an issue of faith for us. It's a little bit more deep water. You can tell that it's not just the shallow faith that many of us have, the rub the side of the genie bottle, God's going to answer all of our problems. There is a way to live that is not necessarily problem-free, but there's a way to live that the problem no longer dominates you because you've learned the secret to contentment, which is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, that's what I call good news. Amen? Amen. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you in the Word of God. May that Word go deep in your hearts today. Whatever you're facing, might you come to the Lord. Instead of go to that problem and talk about it, exaggerate it, take it to the only one that can actually do something about it, and then let him swap the problem with his grace. And then you'll have learned the secret to contentment. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. I think we're going to close in a song this morning. Let's all stand together as our worship team comes. And I pray for you every morning, and I tell, I, I tell Jim that, that uh, Anita and I over breakfast every morning praise for this church, that God's grace would be among you in this time of searching. So uh, we love you, and it's been just a joy to be with you today. God bless you.
that song is a perfect reminder of what Dr. Carl was talking about with Peter locking eyes with Christ when the wind and the waves crash around us. If our sight, if our eyes are locked on what God has for us and on God, it is well with our soul. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that even amongst the wind and the waves of the tumultuousness of their lives, the thorns that are in our side, I pray that we can continue to keep our eyes on you through it. so that it will indeed be well with our souls. You already know you have us. You already know that no matter what, we're going to be saved. Just like Peter, even if we sink, you still save us. So I pray. I pray as we leave this place, as we go on to the tumultuousness of our lives, the storm that is brewing in the world. That we would remember that and keep our eyes on you so that our soul will be well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.